historian Will Durant attempted to calculate the amount of time that our world has been at peace. And so he searched the records of history and he discovered that from 1453 BC until the present, he could only find 268 years that were free from war. That's less than 8%. And I think that that's probably optimistic because just because a war wasn't recorded down for history doesn't mean that it didn't happen. But nevertheless, very little of our history as people has been free from war. Now for me personally, war is something that's very distant. I've never been in combat. I've never lived in a combat zone. For me, war is something that I observe from the comfort of my living room watching it on television. And I have memories going back all the way to my childhood of that. I can remember watching the nightly news and every night they would give the body count of the Vietnam War. And at that time, they would um, show the planes being unloaded with flag-covered coffins. And for the families of those soldiers, the war was much more real than it was for me. 2008, of course, is no different. I know that many of you have been in combat, and you've seen war firsthand. And I know also that there's a family here who are refugees, having fled from turmoil in their own country. But I want you to know that no matter what your personal experience with war is, God reminds us in our passage that in a very real and literal way, each one of us either was or is at war with him. And as devastating and horrible as war between nations is, you can be certain that the consequences of being at war with God are much more serious. So God's word today divides us into two camps. There are those who are now at peace with God, and there are those who are still at war. And that phrase, still at war, is important because all of us started out that way. Because of Adam's sin, we were born as sinners. We didn't become sinners when we committed our first sin. We committed our first sin because we were sinners. And so today we're going to look at the doctrine of reconciliation. God uses this term to describe what happens when people are changed from being at war with God to being at peace with God. We're going to see how reconciliation happens. We're going to see what changes in a person who is reconciled. How are they different? And we're also going to see that God gives us evidence that we can know that this has truly happened. So our text today is Colossians chapter 1. I'd like you to turn there, please. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 23. But I want to pick up in verse 15 and kind of get a running start at it. And verse 15 is this wonderful paragraph that Paul, uh, where he, that Paul wrote where he outlines the deity and the supremacy of Christ. So Colossians 1, starting in verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. 
He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him. I say whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now in that paragraph, we're going to pause right there for a minute. Paul gives many, many things that are true about Christ. And we're only going to focus on the last one. But I want to just review and paraphrase what Paul has said there. He's taught us that when you look at Jesus, you are looking at God. He's taught us that Jesus is preeminent over all creation. He's taught us that Jesus is the creator of all things. He's taught us that Jesus existed in eternity past. Before anything was created, he was there. He's taught us that Jesus is actively holding the universe together. Jesus is the source and the leader of the church. Jesus conquered death and made it possible for us to live eternally. There is nothing over which Jesus doesn't rule. Jesus is the fullness of deity. There's nothing about God that's lacking in Jesus. And then Jesus is the one who reconciles us to the Father. And it's that last one that we're going to look at, this idea of reconciliation. What God does for us is described with that great word, reconcile. He reconciles us with himself through Christ, and that peace is made possible through the blood of Christ. The definition of the word reconcile is to change the status and condition of a relationship in such a way so as to remove enmity and replace it with peace. Paul uses this word in the context of a marriage. When a a man and a wife have separated because of strife in their marriage, Paul uses the word reconcile to describe that marriage being restored. And it's that very same idea that he uses here in Colossians, as well as in some other places, to describe us being reconciled to God, that relationship being established or restored. Basically, Reconciliation is putting two warring parties back together again. Now, look back in verse 20, because you may have noticed there the phrase, all things. And then again, it says, things on earth and things in heaven. And I want you to understand that this is not a reference to universalism or the idea that all people will be saved. That's a very common view in our society these days. It seems like people believe that everyone is going to the same place, but we're just all on a different path to get there. And that's not what Scripture teaches. It doesn't fit with the teaching of Scripture. A day is coming when Jesus is going to speak the words of Matthew 25, 41 to unbelievers. And he will say to them, depart from me, accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Scripture does not teach universalism. 
Paul here is simply referring to the fact that in addition to us being reconciled to God, there is a sense in which reconciliation affects the entire universe. The effects of sin resulted in tragedy for the human race, but sin has also marred the good universe that God created. God said that currently the creation groans and suffers in Romans 8. He also says that there is a sense in which reconciliation will restore the universe. The effects of the curse will be reversed. Romans 8:19 says the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the son of man. So there's a sense in which creation is reconciled. So Colossians 1:20 it speaks of a very specific and special reconciliation for people and of a broader reconciliation of the universe. The next thing I want you to notice about this text is that bringing about reconciliation is something that the Father enjoys doing. Look back in verse 19. In verse 19, we see that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Christ and through him to reconcile. So reconciliation is not something that God does grudgingly. There's nobody making God do this. In fact, there's nobody making God do anything, right? God reconciles us because it delights him to do it. And finally, in verse 20, please notice that what God does for us is made possible through the blood of Christ's cross. There is peace through the blood. Now, the word peace in Scripture means exactly what you think it means. It means the end of hostilities. The unsaved are at war with God, and what they need and what God offers is peace. If you look down in verse 22, this thought is continued, where it says, He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Jesus coming in the flesh and shedding his blood was required for our salvation because peace comes through the cross. It was at the cross where God's wrath for my sin was poured out on Christ. It was at the cross where Christ suffered what I should suffer. It was at the cross where Jesus died my death. Isaiah puts it this way in 53.5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourgings, we are healed. So the cost of peace was very high. It's offered freely to us, but it wasn't free for Christ. He purchased it. And the cost was a bloody cross upon which the wrath of God was poured. Remember that paradox that in heaven the reconciled wear white robes because they're washed in the red blood of Christ. Well, what exactly did this reconciliation accomplish for us? Paul is going to go on in verses 21 and 22 to explain exactly for us what he has done. And if you, if you like to take notes when you listen, the best way to do this would be with two columns. On the left-hand column, the, the, the heading would be formerly, 
And on the right-hand column, the heading would be, but now. And in each column, there's going to be three things. Paul says that there's three things that were true of us formerly, and there's three things that are true of us now, and they're going to correspond to each other. All right, so we're going to look at the formerly first in verse 21. Let me read that for you. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So those are the three things. You were alienated, hostile, and engaged in evil deeds. And we're going to take a look at each of these. Alienated. The word alien describes a stranger or an outsider. To alienate someone is to shut them out of your fellowship and intimacy. You've alienated them. You've created a separation between you and that person. The word can also be translated estranged. The unsaved are estranged from God. They are serving another master. They are pursuing other relationships, but they don't have a relationship with God. They're not pursuing a relationship with God. And Paul illustrates this idea in Ephesians 2.12. He's talking about the condition of the unsaved Gentiles. And he says in 2.12 of Ephesians, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So mankind has a serious problem, and it's a problem that makes all other problems pale in comparison. Our problem is not an economic problem. Our problem is not a credit problem, and it's not a health care problem. We have a problem that can't be solved by politicians or even pastors. The best that you and I can do is point to the problem and point to the one who can solve the problem. Because ultimately, mankind's problem begins and ends with the fact that they are estranged from God, separated from God. In addition to being estranged or alienated, it says, secondly, we were formerly hostile. In verse 21, the phrase hostile of mind is just another way of saying that we were enemies. We were God's enemies in contrast to being beloved. Maybe you've met people who are openly hostile to God and are not even afraid to say so. Some people get visibly angry at the idea of God and they get angry at you for mentioning him. People are angry at the thought of God having rules People are offended at the thought of needing anything from God. People are shocked at the audacity of Christ claiming to be the only way. People are appalled to think that God would judge my sin. Now, some people might deny that they are hostile toward God. They might say, you know, I don't really know God. I don't know very much about God, but I'm not really hostile toward him. I'm just kind of neutral Well, the only way that a person can claim neutrality with God is because they don't have an appreciation for the nature and extent of their sin. Sin, no matter how minor we think it is, is an affront to a holy God. So, for example, when a child gets angry at mom and dad for enforcing the rules, that anger is ultimately directed toward God who established that authority in his life. If someone lives his life his own way, he demonstrates rebellion 
toward the sovereign of the universe. All sin is an affront to God. Scripture does not have a category for spiritual neutrality. People are described in Scripture in very clear and defining terms. There are believers and there are unbelievers. There are redeemed, there are unredeemed. There are sheep and there are goats. There is no third category for people. So the nicest, kindest, most gentle, unsaved person that you know is spiritually the enemy of God. Romans 8, 7 says, because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God and it's not even able to do so. And those who are, who are in the flesh cannot please God. But well, Paul goes on in verse 21 to state that not only were we estranged from God, not only were we hostile toward God, but those heart conditions manifested themselves in our evil actions. He says that we were engaged in evil deeds. And so the condition of the unsaved is enslavement to sin. John goes so far as to say that they love it. In John 3:19, we read this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. And then concerning those evil deeds, the prophet Isaiah writes, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Isaiah 59.2. So God cannot fellowship with sin. Our sin must be dealt with before we can be reconciled. And the way that our sin is dealt with is by Christ dying on the cross as a substitute for us and receiving the punishment meant for us so that we can go free. Then in verse 22, though, Paul presents the good news. He presents our new condition. 21 has described those who are not reconciled. And now verse 22 presents the contrast or the right-hand side of the column and describes the condition of those who are reconciled. So the contrast is formerly in verse 21 and then but now in verse 22. And the first is, whereas we were once estranged and alienated, he says in 22, we are now reconciled. Hostilities have ended. We are no longer at war with God. We are now at peace with God. I've already defined reconciliation, but I want to just make two more observations about this idea of reconciliation. First, being reconciled to God is not something that we can do in ourselves. The teaching of scripture is that God needed to act on our behalf at a point when we were unable to do so. This is a war that only one side could solve. Paul describes our condition as being helpless. In Romans 5, 6, he says, while we were helpless at the right time, Christ died for us. And a second observation I want to make is that God did this for us while we were still his enemies. We did not surrender first and then have God declare the terms of peace to us. 
Christ acted on our behalf while we were still hostile toward God. So imagine there's a king, and this king is at war with his hostile and rebellious subjects. And the sentence for rebellion in that kingdom is death. The king desires to be at peace with his subjects, but justice must be served. And so the king sends his son to go and live with the rebels. Not to destroy the rebels, but to teach them and ultimately to die for them so that the rebels could live, have peace with the king, and even be adopted into the royal family. That's not usually how wars end, but that's how our war ended. Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. So we were formerly alienated and now we're reconciled. Number two, whereas we were once hostile, we are now presented to the father. Look in verse 22 again. He has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him. That word presented means to cause to stand near. It's the idea that through Christ, we are now able to draw near to the Father. We do not storm the gates of heaven and demand entrance. Christ brings us in. Christ presents us before the Father. Whereas we were once hostile enemies, we are now at peace. And that peace brings fellowship. So we were formerly alienated, and now we're reconciled. We were formerly hostile, but now we're presented to the Father. And then number three, whereas we were once engaged in evil deeds, we are now considered holy, blameless, and above reproach. God does not make peace with us so that we will remain as rebels. Rather, he wants for us to share new life with him. Now, we don't always live holy, blameless, and above reproach, but our position with God is that of being holy, blameless, and above reproach. Now, you probably know these words. The word holy means to be separated from sin and set apart for God's use. It's just like the utensils in the Old Testament tabernacle that they were set apart from the ordinary, they were consecrated, they were declared to be holy, and that then made them suitable for use in the tabernacle and in the temple. They could now be used in the presence of God. And the same thing is true of us. We are no longer common and ordinary. We are now in a new position and in a new condition to be in the presence of God and to be useful to him. Ephesians 1.4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. Now, of course, there's also the practical side to holiness as well. God declares us positionally holy, but he also commands that we act in a way that reflects that position. God says, be ye holy, and he meant it. God expects us to act in a way that reflects 
our new position. And that's what we call sanctification or the whole process of becoming conformed to the image of Christ as God's spirit works in us. I probably should have done a PowerPoint for this, but if you wanted to try to understand sanctification visually, it would involve three layers. And at the very bottom layer, it would be slave to sin. And at the next layer, it would say growing in holiness. And at the final layer, it would say free from sin. And every person starts out life as a slave to sin, and they're living down in that lower uh, layer on that graph, slave to sin. At the moment of conversion, God moves us up into the new layer that's called growing in holiness. And from the time of our salvation until now, until the time of our death, we are growing more and more into being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, it's not a straight line, right? There's ups and downs in our walk with Christ, but the trend is that we're moving more and more into holiness, Now, we never achieve perfection, do we? No, we don't. Until the moment that we die, and at the moment of our death, we enter into that last state where we are now free from sin, and we will spend eternity in heaven with Christ, free from sin. So there's three aspects to our holiness. We are positionally declared holy by God. That's how he sees us. We are practically becoming holy as the Holy Spirit is at work in us, and we ultimately will be holy when we are free from sin. So there's those three aspects to that word. The next word in our text, blameless, simply means to be unblemished or perfect. The image goes back to the temple sacrifices that the Hebrews used to do, and God told them that they were to choose the unblemished, or the perfect animals for sacrifice. They couldn't get the gimpy one. They couldn't choose the one that had the ugly wool. They had to choose the perfect or the, the unblemished, the blameless animals. And through Christ, what Paul is saying is, God views us that way. God considers us to be blameless. Ephesians 5.27, He will present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And then the last word is without reproach, which means to be free from accusation. It's the point that nobody can bring a charge against you that will stick. Now, John has told us that we have an accuser in heaven standing before God, bringing accusations against the brethren. In Revela- That's a little disconcerting to me, by the way. Um, Revelation 12.10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Imagine that. But John also tells us that we have an advocate. 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the righteous. So for those of us who are reconciled to God, the verdict that's stamped over every accusation is blameless, without reproach. 
Even though it's not yet practically true of us, it is positionally true of us. Because the Father sees us as blameless and without reproach because he sees us through Christ. Well, Paul concludes this paragraph by giving us evidence of reconciliation. How can we know that we've been reconciled? And Paul says the answer is that we look to our faith in in God. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. If you are at peace with God, you continue in the faith. Now you should read that phrase, if indeed you continue, as a statement of the quality or type of your faith. This verse does not mean that reconciliation lasts only as long as your faith lasts. And if your faith falters, you then become unreconciled. That's not what scripture teaches. Salvation is not taken away from the redeemed. This verse is describing the type of faith that is saving faith. Saving faith is enduring faith. God does not give faith that won't endure. If you know someone who's made a profession of faith and they subsequently disavowed it, God did not give them that faith. That was something else. If you're reconciled to God, your faith is still in God. You still believe the gospel message. When Paul describes the faith that reconciles as being firmly established and steadfast, he's making an architectural reference. That term firmly established is the word for foundation. And the term um, steadfast and unmoved means that it's not shaken or it doesn't pivot off of that foundation. So the point is that there's a structure or the image is that there's a structure that's built on a solid foundation with all of the hurricane strapping or anything else that it might need that's on this coast. The other coast would be Earthquake prevention, I guess, is what they, how they would build it there. But it's built solidly and firmly, and it's not going to pivot or move off of that foundation. And that's the image that he's using here. Now, the firm foundation that our faith is set upon is Christ himself. If your faith is based on a preacher that you've heard, your faith is not firmly founded. If your faith is based on something that you are doing to earn favor with God... Your faith is not firmly founded. Only faith that's based on what Christ did is saving faith. So we all have trials in life. We all have ups and downs, joys and sorrows. But our faith is not based on those circumstances. Our faith is based on something altogether different. It's based on the hope of the gospel, as it says there in 23. Now, in the New Testament, hope is not a wish. Hope is a confident expectation. We don't put our confident expectation in the gospel and then subsequently put it back on ourselves or on some other belief system or on anything else. Our hope of salvation rests in the message of scripture and that's where it stays. The condition of the Colossians is not unique. It's the story of all people. We all began life at war with God alienated, estranged, 
hostile, enslaved to evil. Every person in this room, every person you know, is either in verse 21 of Colossians 1 or verse 22 of Colossians 1. Every person is in one of those two verses. Before we were saved, we were God's enemies. We were hostile enemy combatants. But God worked on our behalf through Christ so that our relationship with him could be repaired. And he moved us from alienation to reconciliation, from hostility to beloved child in his presence, from enslaved to evil to declared holy. And the evidence that this is true rests in our steadfast faith. Our faith continues and our belief in the work of Christ remains sure and strong. Well, if you are like the majority of people in this world and you've not placed your faith in Christ and the message of the gospel, please know that you are in a perilous position of being God's enemy and being subject to God's wrath. And that's a dangerous position to be in. But Paul in this passage has told you what is possible. God is prepared to change your status from alienated to reconciled, from hostile to beloved, from slave to evil to blameless. And God simply calls us to believe what he has said in scripture and respond in faith to the word. But believers... The message of this verse for you, to remember from where you came. If God saved you, if that was at age 10, age 30, age 60, whatever age that was, whatever age God saved you, prior to that moment, you were his hostile enemy. So rejoice in what Christ has done for you. Remember the high cost of your sin paid by Christ who died to reconcile you. I hope it will cause you to hate your sin more, and to love your Savior more. Paul's message for you is a call to think back and rejoice over what Christ has done and, of course, to live worthy of that new position. I want to close with a prayer, but I actually want to read you a prayer. And this prayer comes from the Puritans. And it's taken from a collection of prayers and devotions called the Valley of Vision. And the prayer I want to read for you is called Reconciliation. So please join me in praying along with the Puritans as I read this prayer. Lord God Almighty, Thou art beforehand with men, for Thou hast reconciled Thyself to the world through the cross. And dost beseech men to accept reconciliation. It is my responsibility to grasp thy overtures of grace. For if thou, the offended part, act first with the word of appeasement, I need not call in question thy willingness to save, but must deplore my own foolish maliciousness. If I do not come to thee as one who seeks thy favor, I live in contempt, anger, malice, self-sufficiency, and thou dost call it enmity. Thou hast taught me the necessity of a mediator, a Messiah, to be embraced in love with all my heart, as king to rule me, as prophet to guide me, as priest to 
to take away my sin and death. And this by faith in thy beloved son who teaches me not to guide myself, not to obey myself, not to try to rule and conquer sin myself, but to cleave to the one who will do it all for me. Thou hast made known to me that to save me is Christ's work, but to cleave to him by faith is my work. And with this faith is the necessity of my daily repentance as sorrow for the sin which Christ by grace has removed. Continue, O God, to teach me that faith apprehends Christ's righteousness, not only for the satisfaction of justice, but as unspotted evidence of thy love to me. Help me to make use of his work of salvation as the ground of peace and of thy favor to and acceptance of me the sinner so that I may live always near the cross. Amen. Amen.